Turning this evening to the book of Ezra, chapter 3 and verse 1. The book of Ezra, chapter 3, verse 1. And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. And our title for this evening is, What Were They Like? The people of the remnant who returned to Judah and Jerusalem after the captivity in Babylon, which is nominally put at 70 years. So we're going to be looking at the lessons for today from this book of Ezra. And I won't reiterate anything that we considered in our introduction to the book and the opening chapters, but here we come to the seventh month, and the children of Israel were in the cities. They'd taken the journey home, and for most of them it would have taken approximately three to four months, and they would have crossed a lot of desert waste in order to get down from their various places in the Babylonian Empire to Judah. And the first thing they appear to have done is to return to their uh, own small holdings and towns and villages in Judah. Some of them, no doubt, had been occupied by the settlers that some 60 years previously had been brought in by the Babylonian authorities to settle in the land. No doubt some of them had to start all over again. But as you know, the Jews of those days were still living for the most part in the uh, plots and portions of land according to their tribes and families that were accorded to them from the very beginning. And they had inherited them, so they returned to their homes, now very dilapidated. Homes built by modern construction would be fairly dilapidated after abandonment for some 60, 70 years. And you can imagine the kind of structure that was in use in Judah and Israel. They would have returned to a shambles and land if it hadn't been reoccupied, horrendously overgrown, and they were all starting from scratch. I, I believe they must have had a prior arrangement made before they set out or on the journey that uh, at the seventh month they would return to Jerusalem in time for the timing of the Feast of Tabernacles would be the first time the feast would be held in decades because we read in verse 1 here the people first of all were in their cities, their villages, their towns. Then they gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. And the text would seem to indicate, perhaps by prearrangement, but there was no canvas, no call made when the time came. They all uh, together, voluntarily in response to that prior arrangement headed for Jerusalem. 
Well, that's quite complex because uh, you consider you're, you're among the 42,000 plus who returned to Judah. You've got nothing but work before you. You're virtually pioneers all over again, building your homes in wasted and ruined areas. And uh, you want to get down to it and make those homes safe and build them up. And the great temptation, well, now we're in our own land again. The great temptation will be to beautify them. And they did fall to that temptation in the course of time and to spend the best of their time and their energies on their small holdings and their homes. But it's quite remarkable that they're given really very little time to settle, just about to identify their plots and build some sort of a shack or make initial repairs, and they're off to Jerusalem. But as one man, they go. So there is tremendous enthusiasm among this remnant that return, this 42,000, and uh, there's a great... uh, uh, optimism under God to re-establish and yet to honour the uh, worship and the re-establishment of the sacrifices and the temple in Jerusalem. It seems so commendable. I'm sure there was some prearrangement, but without canvas, that's what the phrase means, trans- translated as one man. They did it on their own, without uh, having to be aroused. And they all headed together. So there's a lot to be said for this generation. There is a lot of faith in them. How much they understand and believe, whether they really appreciate the full wonder that now the prophecies of God are fulfilled and the purpose of God for the Jews of old is back on the rails, as it were, re-established. The discipline of them, the captivity is ended, and it seemed for many years as though things could never go back. You can't reoccupy Judah. You can't reoccupy Jerusalem. You're under the Babylonians. Now you're under the Persians. This cannot be done. It's out of sight and impossible. And here they are, able to return. Do they see that this is of the Lord? Well, many of them obviously did. Did they see that the promised Messiah, the line, is unbroken? The plan of God is going to be carried out? Well, then we come to verse 2, and in verse 1 you've got the spontaneity of their return, but in chapter 3 and verse 2, how they went about it in Jerusalem. Then stood up Jeshua, or Joshua, as it's spelt elsewhere. Not, of course, the original Joshua, way, way back in the time of Moses, but this is Joshua, or Jeshua here, the son of Josadak. And he was a priest, in fact, he was the acting high priest for all the returnees. And his brethren, the priests, And Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Zerubbabel was uh, a leading uh, prince among the Jews, 
but obviously appointed by the Persian authorities to be the governor, and it says so elsewhere, the governor of Judah and Jerusalem. So they had a governor appointed by the emperor, and he's named second. In due course, he'll be named first. But at this point, he's named second. The high priest takes priority in the record, and after him, the governor. And there's a reason for that. And all the priests and others, and they builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. This was obedience to God for worship. And the worship is to be conducted and everything is to be done exactly as Moses prescribed. So the architect who is appointed is not some secular person. It's the high priest. This is a spiritual activity. This is a religious matter. Moses has got to be perfectly obeyed. There's got to be a complete continuation of the ordinances for worship that God gave to the Jews. Nothing must be left out. Everything must be accurately reproduced. This is so important. They wished to obey God. So even in the record, the high priest is mentioned first. It's a spiritual, a religious activity. Well, imagine it. They got back to Jerusalem, and the place is a ruin. It has been destroyed. And various people pick over the rubble, and they trace out the foundations. Amidst all the dust and the rubble, they seem to mark out the base of the original foundation stones for the walls and the layout, and particularly they're keen to identify the foundation of the altar. They've worked out where it would be, its position, and now they found the stones that were under the altar. So they build their new altar in exactly the same place. Sacrifices can only be offered in Jerusalem under the law of Moses. They can only be offered at the place that God has appointed and they're going to be as scrupulously faithful as they could possibly be. And in verse 3, they set the altar upon his basis, on the original altar foundation. And then an interesting note, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. What's that got to do with it? Ah, you begin to see the people. They, these are the ones who returned. The vast majority of Jews stayed in the Babylonian Empire. They were comfortable. They were content. They didn't see the purpose of their nation. A mere 42,000 returned. They had more in them. But even they are a mixture, because right in the middle of the inauguration of the sacrifice, their chief motive seems to be the fear of the people. So they're very superstitious. Their reason for scrupulously following Moses wasn't necessarily 
because this is right and we want to obey God. It was more because if we do the right thing by God, we'll be protected from our enemies. So there's a certain mixture in them. There is faith, readiness to return. There's also a certain amount of superstition. But this is in the middle of the altar construction. This is for our protection and so on. And on that altar, they burnt offerings. And it was done in accordance with the laws of Moses. But I want to break for a second because some of the fear is well-founded. And uh, some of them perhaps had got it right. We are afraid. The people around us are very hostile. They do not want us back here. They know we're coming by the consent and permission of the emperor. We've got a certain amount of protection, but with no troops. We've no practical protection, and they want us out. They want to clear us away. We're going to, we're interfering with what they've possessed. And the book of Ezra narrative is going to show how vicious it became. So some people are probably, yes, we've got to honour the Lord. Not only because it's right, but because we depend upon him for our protection. This is a dangerous situation. It's amazing how we ever got here. How that Cyrus edict was ever issued. How the way was made clear for us to return. And now we're here. We're going to honour the Lord. And there is healthy fear in the Christian life. And we all of us need some fear. I'm not talking about fear of rejection. If we're truly the Lord's, we're not going to lose our salvation. We're not going to be banished from heaven. I'm not talking about that direction of fear. But we need fear. And it's helpful to us because uh, it works for good. They had to fear evil surroundings and it helped them. We have to fear coldness of heart, worldly distractions, giving too much time and energy to things that are important but not they should not be all-absorbing and encroaching on our Christian service and worship and commitments. Some Christians tempt to give far too much time to home and possessions and family. You know, if we feared that more, what this would do to us, how it would take away our communion with God, ruin our instrumentality, make our hearts cold, make our worship shallow and maybe ultimately hypocritical. If we only feared what our surroundings would do to us. You hear of Christians watching movies that are highly dangerous in their contaminating power and their foul images that they're showing and you think well we're 
tough enough to just look past that. We're not. And all these things have an effect and pull us down. If only we had more fear of the influences around us, it would be extremely helpful. We've just been through the pandemic and uh, quite a lot of people have got accustomed to attending services from their armchairs when it may not be altogether necessary and not coming out and hearing the word of God in person and fellowshipping and making your contribution. There was a pastor speaking to me about he'd inaugurated several years ago evening gospel services rather along the lines that we do them but he couldn't get his Christians to turn out for them. So there would be a pitiful little group. And if he had strangers and people who'd been visited who came into the church, there was no great witness because most of the congregation didn't turn up. Why, Sunday morning was for them the exposition of the word. They didn't need the gospel. They were saved years ago. So there's hardly a testimony in a church that suffers from that where the people don't come and pray through the gospel and learn some gospel arguments for their own witness along the way and join in the worship the peak of worship the gospel service and the most moving for true believers it's so vital dear friends but things shake us off the track and we've got to have some fear of what this kind of thing, non-attendance, skipping services, skipping devotion times, shortening prayer because we're tired or busy, the effect it may have on our spiritual lives, the hardening of conscience because we're no longer challenged, the rise of self-confidence within us, all these things take us from the position we should be in increase our pursuit of self-gratification and the list is endless. So we commend some degree of fear of the effects of our surroundings and our various distractions. Verse 4, they kept also the Feast of Tabernacles. This was going to be the great uniting occasion. You know the Feast of Tabernacles when they made the booths or the little huts to remind them of their time in the wilderness and of their deliverance from Egypt centuries before. The Feast of Tabernacles doubled also as a kind of harvest festival. We hadn't really had a harvest yet, but it was a time of special thanksgiving and rejoicing. And it's often said that the Feast of Tabernacles was the happiest, happiest of the national feasts of Israel in olden times. It was most appropriate that they should be at the Feast of Tabernacles. Their first, it was actually their second year that it fell in the land, as it is written, and offered daily burnt offerings by number, according to the custom, as the duty of every day required. And then look at verse 5, another token of positive values in the people. Uh, verses 5, 6, and 7, 
They went on and they were consistent after that in keeping all the feasts. And at the end of verse 5, and of everyone that willingly offered a freewill offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. That took up to another year. Verse 7, they gave money also unto the masons and to the carpenters. And then they gave kind, paid in kind, in meat and drink and oil unto the people of Zidon and of Tyre. Why the difference? Well, presumably, they only had their own currency. So they paid their own carpenters and masons, stonemasons, in cash. But internationally, when they went to Tyre and Sidon for timber and stone, they paid in kind. And then they arranged it to be freighted all the way down to Joppa. And this was all in accordance. At the end of verse 7, there's a most important little note. According to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. And grant there doesn't mean money. Cyrus may have given them money, but it doesn't refer to that. It's an old-fashioned way of referring to the permit in the Hebrew, or the license. So they had official sanction, a law of Persia passed, allowing them to trade and to secure stone and timber from those other surrounding nations, also under Persia, and uh, to uh, freight it and carry on with the rebuilding of, of their temple and of their city. So they had a great deal going for them. They had the decree of Cyrus, which had enabled them to come. They had the means to come, given them by God. They had a safe journey, and it was a very dangerous journey, down to Judah. And now they had the goodwill of the people and they all came together and they had the official legal permits and licenses to do this. And otherwise, maybe, Tyre and Sidon, this wasn't like the time of Solomon when the kings of Tyre and Sidon would be only too happy to trade with him. He was credit worthy. He was the wealthiest king in the region. He was spending a lot of money. There was tremendous trust recorded at the time of the building of the first temple. It's all different now. They're no longer a nation. There's only 42,000 of them. They've got a certain amount of wealth, but nothing like the wealth of Judah and Israel in earlier years. Now nobody wants to trade with them. They're not credit worthy for anything. They've got to pay in kind, rather than in cash even. And they've got to have the sanction of the emperor for people to cooperate with them. What a difference. They're now much reduced in circumstances, but they've still got a lot to rejoice about. Verse 8, now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel to actually set the work in order. 
And again, it involves the priests and the Levites, and then Levites from 20 years old and upwards, at the end of verse 8, to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. And uh, the details follow in the next uh, verse. But look here at verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel, their robes, with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. Things are changing. By the second year, they've uh, cleared out the rubble and the dust, one assumes, They've exposed the foundations of the walls. The new temple, the second temple, isn't going to be as large as the original temple built by Solomon. In fact, it was some 60 cubits shorter, 90 feet shorter. It was a much smaller affair, and it didn't have anything like the riches in it. Perhaps it was missing most of the gold leaf that was caked onto the ornate woodwork and all the expensive decorations. It lacked a lot of that. It rather hints that there's none of it in these early days because the chapter only refers to the robes of the priests as being authentic. They found those the robes for the priests and the Levites. But there doesn't seem to have been a lot of value. It's as much as they could do to pay for the structure itself, but it was much smaller. However, before the walls were built, the new walls, they've just got the foundations going up. Already they're worshipping, and in verse 10 it mentions the trumpets and the cymbals. The trumpets, it's all done according to the ordinance of David in Second Chronicles, described at length. The trumpets summoned the people. When there was a worship to attend, the trumpets were sounded. The trumpets had one other task too. Whenever an offering went up, the trumpets sounded. The importance of that long term was when the walls were built, when the temple was constructed, most of the people would be in the temple courts outside the area, the central court, where the sacrifices went up. So they couldn't see it. And there was nothing to hear. And so the trumpet sounded to indicate to the people, now... The sacrifice is going up. The symbol's the same. They only sounded when the sacrifice was burning, when it went, the smoke went up. The trumpets and the cymbals sounded. And everyone from afar, and there would be thousands there once the walls were up, outside the walls, well, the people then would bow in worship. Their sacrifice was being offered. Once the sacrifices were over, that particular sacrifice took a few minutes, then it was over, the trumpets fell silent, the uh, cymbals no longer clashed, 
and the people sang accompanied only by the stringed instruments, which are mentioned in due course. They were the only instruments that were allowed in Second Chronicles under David to accompany the singing. They sung worship. So there's a great control, and we've been through all this in detail in other studies, there was a great control over the instrumentation of the temple. And you notice it was observed the moment they came back and regrouped, we want this to be authentic. We're going to do it exactly as we're supposed to. David was punished for having more elaborate worship and God gave him new ordinances of worship and he faithfully abided by them and we must do the same. And this goes on with Nehemiah too. He does the same. Years later, he follows scrupulously the ordinance given through David. So only the uh, strings accompanied the sung worship. Why was that? Well, some people say it was to avoid as much as possible the cultic worship of the pagans, which was done with every conceivable instrument. It was, uh, the idea was to achieve as much noise as possible and to entertain and stir the people in a sensual manner. And the house of God, it is assumed, was to be entirely different. Well, yes, there's no doubt truth in that, but it's obvious also that the instrumentation for the sung worship was very simple, so as not to distract from the sung worship. People were not there to enjoy the music, it was just accompaniment. They were there to focus on the words and to mean them and to wing them heavenward and to think about them and to be moved and affected by them. So there was to be no great distraction in the worship. Many, well, at least nine instruments named in the Old Testament were known to the Jews of old, but only two stringed instruments, more than two in number, but two types of stringed instrument was actually permitted for the accompaniment of psalms and song. Verse 11, and they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks. Singing was so important and efforts in singing according to our ability is vital. They sang together by course in praising and giving thanks. Note the distinction. And we continue these distinctions today, or we should. What is worship? Not only spoken in prayer to God, but in hymns and psalms, and spiritual songs. First of all, it's adoration. We focus on him, and we try to open every service with a hymn or a psalm which is objective and which talks about God and his mighty acts and his power and his greatness and his glory. And we try in the opening of worship 
to be as objective as possible. Forget about ourselves for a moment. Oh, but I want to thank God for my salvation. Of course we do. But not number one. Not first. He's first. We compose our minds and we worship him. Praise is the first thing. Thanksgiving comes afterwards. So we focus on God. We thank him then for the things that he has done, for salvation in general, for creation, for his works. Then we thank him for what he's done for us. We're never first. We're next. So often it's the other way around today. All those uh, contemporary worship songs that begin services are about me and God's love for me and how I love him and how I have this and receive that. It's absolutely unscriptural. The teaching on worship throughout the Bible, cover to cover, is always the same. He comes first. Objective first, heartfelt, drawing ourselves out to him, appreciate him, gaining a worthy concept of his might and majesty and holiness and kindness and love. Only then do we come to ourselves. That's lesson one. They scrap lesson one and abandon it. This is summarized, of course, in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel but we remember the categories of prayer and praise and we try to follow the order adoration, thanksgiving repentance asking intercession, we don't leave that out, affirmation of great things that he's taught us and we thank him for them and dedication and we try to honour all these categories consciously you won't find that in the modern songbooks they're all over the place there's no categorization visible biblical worship is lost almost entirely enough of that all the people shouted with a great shout when they praise the Lord. Well, it, it, it sounds almost unseemly. A shout. We don't want to shout. But of course, the Hebrew speaks more of a, an acclamation of praise, not a shout. Nowadays, the word shout is not such a pretty uh, translation. I'm sure it was tuneful and in their psalms and their songs but they put all their enthusiasm and feeling into it I remember hearing somebody describe somebody else's singing once as a sound like dragging a spade along the ground it wasn't very complimentary but that is a good description sometimes of how some people sing well, no sign of that here. Even that crowd of remnant returnees who didn't all have perfect faith by any means, well, they praised the Lord with the whole heart and with great effort because the foundation 
of the house of the Lord was laid. But just the last two verses, and we must close with these. This is really all introductory to the book. Uh, The more amazing things begin in the following chapter. But verse 12, many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men, well, they must have been pretty ancient. Some people say it was 50 years since the destruction of the first temple. More likely 60 years. If you think it's 50 years and you calculate that way, then maybe it's the over 60s, they would have been 10 when they last saw the temple. More realistically, the over 65s. If you think it stood for 60 years, was demolished, had been demolished for 60 years, which I think is more likely, and they were 70, 75 and over, these ancient men. Well, they'd seen the first house. Once the foundations of this new house were laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice. I can kind of hear it. I would guess, but it's only a guess, that it started with one man, and he began to wail, as they do in the East when they mourn, and they're very sad. Not very much like our culture here, but they wail out loud. I think one man started it, and then the other old men couldn't control themselves, and they saw what he was getting at, and they all began to weep. This is nothing like our original temple. This is so much smaller, and we haven't got all the gold and the silver of the walls and everything. And they just couldn't hold back. They wept. Now, what are we to make of it? Really, we can understand it to a degree. Our nation has been humbled. We've been disciplined. We're not returning to the condition we used to know. This is another era. We're in for a period of poverty and building and starting all over again. But some of them, their sorrow would have been rather misplaced. How can we be a witness to the pagan nations? How can we make an impression with a small temple and an ungarnished temple? and a temple that doesn't exude wealth and prosperity and power and success. And they wept for the wrong reasons. They wanted to make an impression according to the flesh, and they were desperately sad. But the younger people, the under 65s or 75s, who'd never seen the temple, They just could only see the wonder of this. We never thought it would be possible to return. What has happened? 
and here we are and we're building and the foundation is laid and they were ecstatic with happiness and with joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. What a mixture. But there's a few things to say as we close. Never downgrade the promises of God and the blessings that you've got in hand. The people who praised were right. They've got it right. I often find this, and I don't want to put anybody off in the least from coming and telling me that they're in trouble or difficulty or assurance has waned or their hearts have grown cold. Can you help? But so often I find I'm saying similar things. And the same with people who come and they say, I'm desperately trying to find the Lord, but I have no certainty that I'm saved. And uh, I'm searching my heart all the time and I'm in constant anguish. Am I saved? And I will say to them, well, what has God already done? He's changed your whole manner of thinking. There was a time when you were running from him and wild horses wouldn't bring you to church and you wanted to avoid this and you were against it and now you're desperate to find him and you want to be sure that you're his. What a change. And now you've seen the gospel and something has happened and you know, you absolutely know that it's true and you're certain of it. And you must have it. And you must have Christ. Well, just look at how much he's already done. If you're not there, you're three quarters of the way there. He's done so much in your heart. You owe him your praise. You owe him your thanks. You owe him your trust. Trust him. Thank him. Live now as a Christian. He's changed you so much. You find this is what should have been the case there. The old men should have pulled themselves together. Look what the Lord has done. And look at his promises. Never downgrade such experience as you have and the promises of God that are in your possession, however rough the going or difficult your circumstances may be. And if you bear with me for just a last comment, you know, the temple prefigures Christ. When you're looking at temple number one, built by Solomon or before that when you're looking at the tabernacle in the wilderness you're looking at Christ this all prefigures him and it's full of pictures of him and his grace and his coming and his work when you look at the second tabernacle 
the tabernacle of Zerubbabel, as some call it, the tabernacle of Ezra, as others call it. When you look at the second tabernacle, this one that's just got the foundations down, you're looking at Christ. And actually, while the first temple prefigured Christ so as to show his riches, he's the Son of God, he's glorious, reflects something of his riches as well as his grace, the second tabernacle is actually a more accurate portrayal of the Son of God who came into this world and had no form nor comeliness, no beauty externally that we should desire him. The second tabernacle is a much better picture of Christ than even the first. A tabernacle built in troubles, built to troubles. A small tabernacle, inconspicuous, despised by the flesh and by the world. And yet, the tabernacle is raised up again. It's the resurrection. The story of Christ is in the tabernacle. And this second tabernacle could be said to be the one in which Christ walked and personally taught because we know the second tabernacle was greatly enlarged in 20 BC the work started by Herod so called Herod the Great Herod wasn't great he was very small he was called the great because he built lavishly great public buildings and he decided the Jews all thought he was going to knock it down he decided to extend and build up and renovate the temple to ingratiate the Jews. And he did, and he made it much bigger. And he built the perimeter wall. The site was more than twice as large. And he built a great fortress in it, Fortress Antonio, that in due course was occupied by the Romans. And he extended it to the length of the original tabernacle, by 90 feet. They did all that. But the original pavings and the heart of the second temple, what was inside Herod's rebuilding, was the authentic temple in which Christ walked. So the second temple that the old men wept over was the one that the Son of God would personally honour and use. That's just a thought. Never go according to the flesh. God works according to the Spirit's.